You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Okay, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 80. We're working through some psalms here in the summer, uh, particularly ones that have connections to the Gospel of John. That's why we read a long passage from John chapter 9 this morning is because we, at the end of the summer, intend to go back to the Gospel of John and uh, finish up the book. So that's our theme here in 2020 is to look at the Gospel of John. And our break here in the summer is to look at Psalms to show that, that the whole Bible tells one story about humanity and about God and about Jesus, who is reconciling a broken and sinful and rebellious humanity to a good and holy God. And, uh, and so we want to show that by looking at the Psalms and John this year. Uh, there's an there's a old proverb or phrase that says, the sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And the idea is that the same sun, the same heat, the same shining sun does two different things to two different um, elements, depending on the nature of that element. And the idea is, is that when the heat of the sun comes, some things get softer and melt and some things get harder and stronger um, or more brittle. And the idea here is that uh, here we have in this psalm is we have the heat of God's discipline coming down on his people. And what will happen to his people? Will their hearts soften towards God? Or will they become hardened and angry at God? I, don't, I wonder what that's like for you if you've been in a tough circumstance. Whether it's made you more compassionate more soft-hearted, or whether hard circumstances have made you bitter and more, um, and more hardened in your heart to God and to others. My prayer is that during this uh, kind of COVID-19 time, is my prayer for myself is, God, make me more compassionate. Make me more loving. Make me more gracious. And I hope that that's the same for you as well. And so what we have here in Psalm 80 is we have a prayer of revival. Um, A.W. Tozer says this. This is an interesting thing to think about. There is considerable truth in the idea that revivals are born after midnight, after the longest darkness. For revivals or any other spiritual gifts and graces come only to those who want them badly enough. It may be said without qualification that every man is as holy and full of the Holy Spirit as he wants to be. He may not be as full as he wishes to be, but he is almost certainly as full as he wants to be. So you're as godly and as holy as you want to be. You can have as much of God as you want. The problem is, is that our wants are too low, are too, too weak. And sometimes what it takes is it takes sometimes the discipline of the Lord to sort of wake us out of our slumber and get us to realize that we really do need God a whole lot more than we thought. And that's what we have here. 
The context of this psalm is, uh, is the fall of the northern ten tribes of Israel to, uh, to Assyria. So the, the Assyrian army was a, uh, the Assyrian kingdom was a particularly cruel and ruthless one, and they had hounded Israel for quite some time, but now God had been warning them and warning them, and God removed his protection, and the northern ten tribes of Israel have collapsed in 722 BC. It actually took quite some time, but the fall of the northern kingdoms finally happened after many warnings from God. Second Chronicles talks about this in uh, verses 25 and 26. They broke faith with the God of their fathers, speaking of Israel, and, and whored after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pool, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them um, to Helah, Habor, Hera, and the river Gozan to this day. And so it's, it, what's happening is this psalm is a response by the remaining two tribes, a response to God going, God, what has happened? What is taking place here? And so this is a response to the discipline of God. Hardship has come upon Israel because of their disobedience to God. God has removed his protection. So much of Israel has been taken into exile, and those that remain are lamenting. And what we have here is a prayer of revival. So the discipline of God, the heat of God, has cultivated, has, 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 has made this response, this, uh, this prayer for revival. And I pray that it's our prayer as well today, for ourselves, for our church, for our country, for our world, a prayer of revival. So the psalm is divided into three equal parts, unequal parts, sorry, unequal parts, and each one is punctuated with a repeated yet expanding phrase. You maybe noticed it in there. Um, so in verse 3, verse 7, and verse 19, we have this phrase um, that, uh, that goes like this, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And that's really the theme there. That's the prayer. God, bring revival to us. Bring us back. Turn us around. And I'll show you as we go through that this, this, the phrase gets a little longer and a little more intimate each time. So in, in verses 1 through 3, we see the call for divine attention. So in the middle of the heat of God's discipline upon them, we hear the call for divine attention. Verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. And so there's a plea for God, hey, God, pay attention, like hear our call, give ear. Lord, we know that you're there, we know that you're you're out there, and so we're asking for you to consider our situation. And it's interesting that the, the very first words are, O shepherd of Israel, God, you have been so kind to care for your flock. You have been so good to us. You are the shepherd, and so they're pleading to God as a shepherd. Uh, the description of shepherd and sheep throughout is throughout the Old Testament, to describe God's relationship with Israel and describe Israel as, a, as like a flock, and God has been like a shepherd to them. We've looked at this several times. It's a theme that comes up regularly in the Psalms. It comes up often in the book of John, and here we see it again. And what, what's interesting is that, that um, in, in Genesis 48, 24, Jacob says that God has been like a shepherd all his life. In Numbers 27, Moses tells God the people need a shepherd to lead them. And so God then in, 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 puts Joshua in charge. In Psalm 23, we hear that the Lord is my shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, God condemns the unfaithful shepherds of Israel and promises that he will come and actually personally shepherd his people. He's going to personally come and shepherd them. Micah 5, Bethlehem, is described as being the one who will produce the strong shepherd for God's people. So whenever God had his choice... To represent or care for the people, who did he often choose? He chose shepherds. When he was calling a people, he called Abraham, a shepherd. Isaac, a shepherd. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel and became the, identifier, the identifying name of God's people, was a shepherd. When God wanted to bring them out of the Exodus, he called Moses, a shepherd. And when he led them into the promised land, he, he called Joshua to lead them as a shepherd. And the greatest king in Israel's history was a shepherd boy named David. God is driving home to us that we are helpless like sheep. 
And he is, a, he is a shepherd who is near and close. In verse 2, we see a, a call for divine help and action. Joseph, his son, and his brothers are the ones that are representing all of Israel. And so he calls out on behalf of Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, Lord, come and save us. And then we have verse 3, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved, which is the repeated phrase over and over. Lord, we have one simple request, and it is this, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. The word restore there, restore us, could literally be called turn us back. It's the idea of repentance, God, change our hearts. It's not restoration in the sense of bring back the glory of Israel, bring back the good old days. It's, Lord, change us as people. Restore us to yourself, not restore us to all our stuff that we lost. Restore us to you. Make, a, make our hearts long for you. Restore us, O God. Let your faith shine that we may be saved. They feel like God's face has turned away, and in a sense it has. The face of his blessing. They're now feeling the frown of God as opposed to the smile of God. And they're, like, and they're calling, O God, turn your face and smile on us. That's all we want. We don't even want all our stuff back. We want you to turn our hearts let us see your smiling face, and that will save us, that we may be saved. God plus nothing equals everything. But everything minus God is nothing. And that's what's happened. They have turned their back on God, and now they no longer have God in this experiential sense. And they're crying out, God, turn our hearts back. We, where have we gone wrong? We want you we want you to turn our hearts, O oh God. And then in verses 4 through 7, we see the recognition of divine discipline. He then begins to explain what the situation is. In verse 4, he says, O oh God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? So here we go. We get the indication that God is disciplining them. How long will you be angry with us, God? He doesn't cry, why? He knows why. He knows God has good reason to be angry with how they've conducted themselves. But he asks, how long? Lord, how long will your discipline be? There's a little bit of a hopefulness in that, isn't there? Is that they know that God will not permanently turn his back on his people, but he is disciplining them. And they're wondering, Lord, how long will it take us to learn our lesson? How long will this go on? God's anger against them is deserved. They've been unfaithful to him. They have been blatantly disregarding him, blatantly dishonoring him, blatantly disobeying him while holding themselves up as God's people, though they bear no resemblance to him at all. They claim to be his representatives in the world, and yet they look nothing like him. And so the Lord has disciplined them. Verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears. So the idea here is that they're crying so much that, that their, their bread is soggy, their toast is soggy, it tastes like tears. You have given them tears to drink in full measure. So they're crying even as they eat, and it's, their, their, their food and their drink tastes like their tears. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among us. So God's discipline here has been painful. The tears are flavoring their meals. They are disrespected and dishonored by their neighbors. In 2 Kings 17, if you have your Bible, you can turn over there. There's an extended section that describes this very event and what's going on. This is the context and the reason for their exile. It's a longer section here, but I want you to just hear uh, God's perspective on what these... Uh, why this is happening. So in verses 1 through 6, it describes how uh, uh, God allows Assyria to come and take those 10 northern tribes away. And then in verse 7, he explains. There's an explanation. He says, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations that the Lord drove them out before the people of Israel. And in the customs of the kings of Israel they had practiced. And the people of Israel did, did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and over, under every green tree. So there's idol worship everywhere among God's people. And there they made offerings to all the high places, as the nations did that whom the Lord carried away before them. So God had cleared out all of these wicked nations and then planted Israel there, and Israel did the same thing. They served idols of which the Lord had said, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your ways 
and keep the commands of my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and warnings that he had given them. They went after false idols and became false themselves. They And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God they made, and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until they had, he had cast them out of his sight. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jer- Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from, the following, from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Pretty intense, isn't it? Pretty sobering. They, were just, they just took for granted the blessings of the Lord. They took for granted and they forgot the Lord. They forgot God. And so God gave them what they wanted, which was life without him. And they were taken into exile. It's a sobering thought. And it, it's amazing how detailed it is here. God is trying to get his point across. And how would the people respond? And Psalm 80 is that response. Verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And notice that this is different than verse 3 in that there's two words added in. It's actually just one word in Hebrew. But one. Restore us, O God, in verse 3. Let your face shine that we may be saved. But look at this, verse 7. O Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You could translate, and often in the Old Testament, host is translated as armies. O God of armies. God of armies. Now, sometimes that's referring to heavenly armies, but often it's referred to earthly armies. The psalmist here is recognizing that God is not just God over Israel, but God is God over the Assyrian army. This discipline that you have brought, Lord, has been under your hand. You are the God of all armies. And so while he's recognizing this divine discipline, he's understanding that this has happened under the hand of God. This did not happen in spite of God. This happened under God. So Israel's primary issue is not Assyria. Their primary issue is their broken relationship with God. There's not a word about Assyria in here. They know that their issue is that they are not rightly related to God. And so they cry, God of hosts, you're the God over all armies, you're God over our enemies' armies. And so we ask for you to have favor on us. Turn our hearts, Lord. O God of armies, let your face shine on us that we may be saved. In this verses 18, verse 8 through 19, the bulk of the psalm, we have the metaphor of a ravaged vine. So now what's happening is the psalmist is recounting Israel's history in, in the sense of this metaphor of a vine. So the vine represents Israel, and God is the vine dresser. God is the gardener who has, has taken care of the vine. And just, just follow along. This is the story of the Old Testament put in this metaphor of a vine. Verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. This is in Canaan when they conquested the land. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. This this vine was so blessed by God that it grew to such prominence that it shaded mountains. The mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Jordan River, you gave us such blessing, Lord. And we had such influence over, over the whole world. And we have this poetic description as God is a careful gardener who is bringing up this luxurious, gigantic vine. Uh, to bear fruit for him. And Israel is that beloved vine. 
Many places in the Old Testament, Israel is likened to a vine. In Isaiah 5, um, it's, Jesus, God says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vine, had a vineyard and a fertile, very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, speaking of God, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a, vine, a wine vat in it. And he looked for, its yield, looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. God didn't get the fruit from his people that he intended. Jeremiah 2.21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Again, speaking of Israel not being who they were supposed to be. Hosea 10.1, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. The more God blessed them, the more they spent that blessing on idolatry. In Ezekiel, or Ezekiel 15.6, Therefore, thus says the Lord, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So God had so blessed this vine, so blessed this nation, and they had turned against him, consistent rebellion. So in verse 12, Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages, and all that move in the field feed on it. So the metaphor of the vine is now being ravaged by these other nations. And the psalmist is asking God why he has removed his hand of protection. But he knows. He knows it's because of their unfaithfulness. Verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts. Turn down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. Don't waste the work that you've put into this. God, don't waste your investment. Verse 15, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. So we're going to have this son up here now. We'll come back to him in a minute. This son that you've made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And so there's a plea for God to have mercy on his people, to not waste his investment in Israel, to keep his promises. There's this plea to do it. The psalmist has faith that God is not done with them yet, and better days are ahead. He cries with God to look on their helpless state and have mercy. And so we see the vine metaphor switch a little bit, and we have this mysterious son you have made strong, the man at your right hand, the son of man. Now, now the Israel is often called a son of God, um, and so it is speaking of Israel, but actually the psalm is speaking, I think, of something even greater and further ahead. In Daniel chapter 7, we have this idea of a son of man appearing. In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. So the son coming to the ancient of days, the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in the Old Testament, there is this promise that there will be a king that will be greater than David, that will establish a kingdom that will not fail, that will not falter, that will not turn from their God, and will endure forever. And here we have in Psalm 80 the indication that, that a call for that son, that king, to come and turn the hearts of his people once and for all. Once and for all, to God permanently, that they might be turned completely, be given life. And then in verse 19, restore us, O God, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine on us that we may be saved. So now we have an additional word, the Lord, which is Yahweh, his personal covenant-keeping name. Now we have intimacy. Now we have the personal name of God, O Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God of Israel. O Lord, God of hosts, who's also the God of all the armies, may his face shine on us that we may be saved. You see the intimacy that's growing from generic God to God of all armies to now the personal God of Israel who keeps his promises. Lord, we know you'll turn us back. We know you'll draw us near. We know you'll turn your face to us. We know that there is a son of man who will come and shine your face upon us and bring us back. And so the plea there is restore us, O God. O Lord, God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. So the psalmist is pleading for revival and restoration because only the personal, covenant-keeping, almighty God of all powers, shepherd of Israel, can ultimately change their circumstances, but more importantly, change their hearts.
And that's true for every one of us as well. In hard times, may we cry out for the Lord to turn our hearts to him, to shine his face and save us. I want to show you how this psalm speaks of Christ. Christ is all over this psalm. You've probably already seen where Jesus is showing up in this psalm already. You probably have already caught hints of where he's at. But listen to these glorious truths. Jesus is the saving shepherd of of verse 1, sent to gather the lost sheep from exile. John 10, 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. We've been living in exile ever since Genesis 3, dealing with the consequences of our sin, dealing with enemies. And God is, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the shepherd who's going after, leaving the 99 and coming after the one. We're the one that he's coming after. So Jesus is the saving shepherd. Jesus is the one who's enthroned over the cherubim. Revelation 5, 8 through 10, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a lamp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. So these are the cherubim and the elders praising Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and nation and people and and language. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is the one enthroned above the cherubim. Jesus is the fruitful vine of verses 8 through 15 giving life and fruit to all of the branches that are connected to him by faith, bearing fruit in them. This is the church. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of Israel. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Verse in John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. You don't have life in and of yourself. You have life because you're connected to me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the vine that will overshadow the mountains, the the vine that will overshadow the trees, the vine that will indeed cover the entire earth is Jesus Christ and his people, his church. The people connected to him, this vine will grow and it will bear fruit. God will get the fruit he deserves through the people that are connected to Jesus. God will get the fruit he intends. John 15, 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me my disciples. The purpose of the vine is to bear fruit for the owner. And God did not get the fruit that he intended out of Israel, but Jesus, the true Israel, the true vine, will come, and he will have his fruit through those who trust in him. The church is now the fruitfulness of Christ spread all over the world, and indeed one day for eternity. Jesus is the strong son of man. John 1, 51, Jesus said to Andrew, you will see greater things than these. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus takes the term on himself. The term from Psalm 80, the term from uh, Daniel 7. In John 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and die on a cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. How will he bring about this restoration that's called for in Psalm 80? He will do it by dying in their place taking their exile for him, taking the wrath of God against their sin, and all who would trust in him will be gathered back up into a nation, restored, their hearts changed, given life. John 5 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, from Psalm 80. And then in Revelation 1, Then I turned and saw a voice who was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. This lampstands refers to the churches of God, and Jesus is in their midst. And he is a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, his church, the vine, the branches on the vine. Um, And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, that are and those that are to take place after this. And so we have Jesus as the one who is made strong by God to bring his people back. And then lastly, Jesus is the shining face of God. You want to know what Jesus is or what God is like? Look at Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if God has turned his face, in, it looks like Jesus. Jesus is the turned face of God. And if you in your heart see the beauty of Jesus and recognize the horror of your sin, and you turn from your sin and you cling to that smiling face of Jesus, he will purge you of your sins. He will bring you into a new life with himself. And you will bear fruit. You will be part of the restoration. You will be saved. And so that's my call to you today. Is that in these moments, cry out to God, restore us, O Jesus. May your face shine on us that we may be saved. God saves us. And so here's some applications as we close. Some things I want you to take away here. Embrace the total sovereignty of God in salvation and judgment. We see that here, don't we? Israel cannot save themselves. God, you have to turn our hearts. You have to give us life. If you don't do it, we're dead. We've proven that. Your blessings, on your external blessings are not enough. The privileged position they had didn't change their hearts. God needed to change their hearts. God alone grants repentance and regeneration. One guy from a long time ago, says this. He says, convert us to yourself, O Lord. From the earthly to the heavenly, convert our rebellious wills to you. And when we are converted, show your face that we may know you. Show your power that we may fear you. Show your wisdom that we may reverence you. Show your goodness that we may love you. Show us once. Show us a second time. Show us always that through tribulation we may pass with a happy face and be saved. When you save, we shall surely be saved. And when you withdraw your hand, we cannot be saved. And so there's a cry here that God would save them. God, only you can turn our hearts. God alone shines the face of Christ that we may be saved. Pray that the Lord would shine the face of Jesus on you and that you would be saved. Secondly, God uses calamities to wake us out of our sinful, self-reliant stupor. That's what happened to Israel. I pray that's what God's doing with us in these days. I pray that maybe COVID-19 and all the other issues that we might be facing personally or nationally or worldwide would be used of God to bring us out of our sinful, self-reliant stupor. What will become of us? Will the heat melt the wax or will it harden the clay? Will we become soft in our hearts towards God and cry for repentance or will we become bitter and angry and frustrated? God, save us. One evangelist was asked, how does revival start? And he told this individual, go home to your room. Take a piece of chalk and draw a circle around yourself. Pray for revival of everyone inside the circle. And then you'll begin to have revival. It starts with us. It starts with our own heart. Lord, restore us. Let your face shine on me that I may be saved. 
Spurgeon says, this is a select lesson for the church of Christ. In your troubles, trials, and adversities, seek first and chiefly and above everything else to have revival of religion in your own heart. The presence of God in your own heart. Having that, you have scarcely anything beside to pray, scarcely anything else to pray for. Until you have that, right? You really ought not pray for anything else. Whatever else may befall you, you shall work, it shall work for your good. All that seems to impede your course shall really prove to be a prosperous gale to waft you in your desired haven. Only take care that you seek God. Be sure that you are turned again unto him, that he would give you the light of his countenance, and so you may be saved. Two more. Embrace Jesus as the centerpiece of the whole Bible, all of history, and your life. That's what's amazing, is that in 722 B.C., there's a psalm written that's about that's calling for God for restoration, and actually it's all about Jesus, Right? All of human history is about Jesus, and your life is meant to be for the glory of Jesus. Will you submit to it? Will you turn from your sin and yourself and live entirely for the glory of Jesus? And pray for personal, church, national, and worldwide revival. It's amazing. About every major world revival has been started when people started praying. And they be began to pray Psalm 80 type prayers. Prayers of confession of sin and prayers for the move of God. And often, you know who it's come from? It's come from children. There was one revival I was reading about, and I'll just summarize it for you. But 8 to 12 year olds began gathering to pray. And over the next few years, tens of thousands of people. So kids, you don't have to be old. Just a passion to pray. A passion to pray. Jonathan Edwards said in the first great awakening that the revival, the greatest work was happening mainly among the young. So it can be anybody. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that the spirit of Psalm 80 would permeate us, Lord. Lord, I pray that it would not take very much discipline to get us to turn to you. It took a, a harsh discipline to get the attention of Israel. And Lord, in some ways, many of them didn't get the message. But we thank you that Psalm 80, that there was some who understood that you were in sovereign control over the whole thing and were intending to use it to turn them to, to you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that the circumstances in our life are meant to turn us to you. And so, Lord, I pray that the prayer of this psalm would be our prayer. Restore us, O Lord God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Lord, I pray that you would give that kind of revival to our own hearts. I pray that you'd give that kind of revival to our church. You'd give that kind of revival to our city, our country, our world, not to restore us to some golden age in the past, but just to restore us to you. So Lord, help us to let go of all of those things and just want you. I pray that's true of my brothers and sisters here. I pray that that's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand and sing with me? There's strength within the sorrow. There's beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our With a love that casts out fear And you are working in our waiting Sanctifying us When beyond our understanding You are teaching us to trust plans are still to prosper you have not forgotten us you're with us in the fire and the flood faithful forever and perfect in love you are sovereign over us and you are wisdom 
raining high above the heavens, reaching down in endless grace. And you're the lifter of the lowly, compassionate and kind. And you surround and you uphold seated. We'll just take a couple minutes here and see if there's any questions about the message or anything. So yeah, go I've, for it. I've got a few questions and then okay. uh, feel free if something formulates in your mind, you can uh, share with us and ask. Um, so I guess I have off the top two initial questions. Um, one is more about the passage and one's more about prayer. Yeah. Um, so the refrain talks about God's face shining on us. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could just, what, it's kind of a weird, I don't know, we, don't, we wouldn't talk about that necessarily. Maybe right. some people kind of intuit maybe what it means, but yeah. I don't know if you could say a little bit more about that, the whole face shining stuff. Yeah, that's a big concept in Scripture because uh, I think we first sort of see the idea of talking with God face-to-face -face with Moses. Moses would meet face-to-face -face with God. And then Moses would actually come out and the glory sort of like imprinted <laughs> on his face like he's shown. In fact, Moses sometimes had to wear a veil because he was hard to look at. So this idea of like being able to be intimate with God face to face in such a way that you're actually able to behold his glory. And, uh, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a wonderful privilege and, a, and a, an incredible blessing. So this idea that God causing his face to shine is, the, is kind of the idea of, of like he's turning, he has his attention and his affection set on you. There's a smile is kind of the idea. The smiling face of God is upon us. And that's what saves us is that it's the favor of God upon us. It's not our works, not our deeds. It's his affection set upon us that, that saves. So I think it's that idea of attention and affection that God sets his face upon us. And what a wonderful privilege because we deserve to have God turned away from us. And that's what happened on the cross is Jesus, in a sense, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? Like pretended like I don't exist, like turned your favor, your attention, your affection away from me. And so Jesus on the cross is taking the face turning away 
on our behalf so that the full face of Jesus, the full face of God may shine upon us, if that makes sense. So favor, yeah. affection, uh, attention, God has, we have that in, in, in the face shining. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the idea there. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, my other question was, I mean, what are some of the kind of practical ways that we can cultivate, say, that kind of praying, you know, like, I mm -hmm. mean, probably everybody in this room would feel like, oh, maybe I should be praying, you know, like, more than I am. Sure. And, yeah. you know, and everyone's probably had the experience of like, well, I'm going to start getting up in the mornings and I'll, I'll pray for an hour or whatever. And then they find that like 30 minutes have gone by and they're not prayed at all. They've been thinking yeah. of or 30 mind. seconds. Yeah. 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 So like the yeah. watching butterflies and that sort of mm -hmm. thing, you know, how do you cultivate? Yeah. Well, I don't know a Christian who thinks they pray as much as they should. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is grace for that in that. It's not your level of prayer that saves you. It's Christ that saves you and your trust in him. But if he has purchased that kind of access, why do we do so, so many things in our own strength? Mm -hmm. Why don't we ask for more help? If we're given kind of automatic, you know, intimate, we can bring our request to God. Why, why do we not do that more? And so I do think it's a good instinct to want to cultivate disciplines. And I would just encourage, like, in, in terms of growth of prayer, I wouldn't shoot for the ideal because that just gets discouraging. Just go, what is one thing I can do? I'm going to try to pray one minute every morning, and I'll put a reminder on my phone or something. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just incremental little things. It doesn't take, God doesn't need big fancy prayers to do his work. He just loves to hear his children talk to him. And so, yeah. so I guess practically, I do, I am calling you, I guess, in this message to pray for, um, for revival, starting with you and then working out as, as far as you can. But take baby steps, like even just one sentence, like, you know, like right here, like <laughs> restore us, oh God, like maybe just put that as a reminder on your phone, an alarm goes off, and I'm just going to pray this one line for 10 seconds, and just, yeah. not that it's some sort of magical incantation, but it captures, it's God's word, it captures my heart, Lord, I, I want this to be true, and so I would encourage just baby steps, but yeah. I am calling us to pray, yeah. pray for revival, and Psalm 80 gives us a sentence that we could pray once a day, once a week. But anything, it's about, it's about progress and growth, not perfection. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. I'm one, one thing I've found helpful recently is, like, I allow my anxiety to actually prompt me to pray. That's good. Like, when I'm yeah. anxious is yeah. when you feel like you need something to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I have been, like, tur like, instead of, like, oh, I'm, I'm being anxious, Lord, trying to hand all those things that are causing me to be anxious. So it's actually good. using the fears I feel to actually cause me to pray yeah. is one thing that's been helpful recently. But yeah, that's huge. If you could start using your insecurities as prompts for prayer, <laughs> now they serve you as opposed to mm -hmm. erode your faith. They build your faith. Like every time you're cut off in traffic, every time you're, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, like if you start like by God's power, begin to make that prompts for prayer, uh, Satan might stop doing that. <laughs> like it only works for their, like the song said, it only works for good. Like, oh, every time, you know, they're anxious, every time they're frustrated every time they're fearful they they call out to god and it's just like you know you win yeah you know? so i, I love that that's awesome i think it's one of the encouraging things actually about this psalm too is that often it's when we're in really tough circumstances and and in this one it's because it's their fault that we can often be like well god will never you know and then you just kind of give up but this is one of those encouraging psalms ironically because mm -hmm. just when you think they should give up mm -hmm. they don't give up mm -hmm. so yeah that's right. Um, That's good. Any questions you guys have? Are there any questions that occur to you about the passage or the sermon? All right. Good. Um, I don't know if there was any that came in on text. I'll nope, I don't think so. Okay, what I want to do is I actually, Justin did this already, but I actually, Abby, can I get you to come up here? Abby is going to be heading off to college, and uh, she's been with us since before we were a church, <laughs> uh, committed to us. So I just want to pray publicly for her, and then, um, and then I'll give us our benediction, and we'll be, uh, we'll be dismissed. Come this way a little bit so that people on the interwebs can see you, all right? Join me in just praying for Abby. God, we thank you so much for Abby. We love her dearly, and I thank you for uh, the time that we have had together with her uh, seeing her journey through her teen years and walk with you and, and, uh, and grow in you and see her graduate and now uh, head off to college. God, we just give you, give you praise uh, that you have saved her, 
uh, that you have called her, that you have a plan for her, and Lord, that we've gotten to be a part of that, and that she's gotten to be part of the of being part of the foundation, uh, the root system of this church. So I thank you for the ways that she has served and uh, befriended and loved us well. And Lord, we just pray for her as she transitions to school. And Justin prayed so well for this already, but we just pray again, Lord, that you would bless her as she transitions there, that, that she would make good friendships that would last a lifetime, that would help her pursue Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that her classes would, um, would uh, just revive her faith, they would strengthen her faith, they would help her grow in the direction that you want her to go. God, we pray that you would lead her to a great church where she will be loved and cared for and where she can serve. And Lord, we just give you thanks for her and pray in these next couple days as they travel down that uh, that that would go well and the transition would be good. And we pray for their family uh, as it's not easy to send a kid off and be that far away. And so we just pray for her folks and her sister as well as they just adjust to not having her around as much. And we thank you that we'll We'll see her uh, again soon on breaks, and uh, we just give you give you praise for Abby. Thank you for her. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we love you. All right, our benediction comes from Numbers chapter 6. So if you would please stand. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen? If there's anything that we can pray for you, if there's any questions you have about following Jesus or anything like that, we, I'll be around. There'll be other people around that would love to talk to you. Uh, feel free to fellowship a little bit outside. I think it's a fairly nice day today. And so make sure you connect with somebody, maybe pray for somebody, and we'll see you not next week. Well, we will at the Main Street Square and back here in two weeks. So God bless you. Thanks for being here. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.